cold here in Nashville. Tonight looks like it's going to be the coldest night in the almost eight years that we've lived here. And we take that a little bit seriously. But there's a ice storm that happened a couple days ago and then some snow on top of it. And the whole city's come to a halt. I used to make fun of that when we first moved here. Coming from the Midwest, we were used to some pretty good snowfalls and the city would somehow, you know, in Indianapolis, we'd still somehow carry on. But I kind of realized after living here for a little while that it only takes an inch or two of snow. There's not a fleet of trucks. There's not a bunch of sand or a mountain of salt that can deal with it. But as I look out the window today and see the snow in my backyard, I can't help but remember the blizzard of 78. And any Midwesterner remembers the blizzard of 1978. Uh, remember, we didn't know that there was supposed to be a blizzard that night, but we went to bed and it was snowing, but we just didn't have any idea what we'd, we would wake up to. We woke up the next morning to about two feet of snow on the ground, and the entire Midwest just shut down. There were places that had over three feet of snow. And it wasn't just that there was two feet of snow, but it would drift. And we lived out in Wanamaker, there was a lot of open spaces with the farms. So the wind would come ripping around and just make these huge snow drifts. And I remember when we got up that morning, we went to open the back door and we opened it up and there was snow piled all the way up, shaped just like the door. You couldn't see outside from the drift of snow. So we walked around the back and dug out our back door. And I remember there was a huge snow drift in the side yard. We had a swing set and you could see the very top bar of the swing set sticking about six inches above the snow and you could walk up on top of that snow our entire street was shut down with these huge snow drifts and living out in wanamaker at the time it was underdeveloped now it's just a bunch of strip malls and and housing additions but at the time it was just a lot of farmers and uh everybody pitched in and all the men went out to the road with shovels or whatever we had, and we dug the entire street out. This is a long stretch of road, probably, a, probably about a mile. There were a lot of farmers out there with their tractors. I remember we stood around, and uh, we were standing there with my dad, and I'd hear these old men just telling crazy stories, crazy stories about snowfalls that they remember from back when that put this one to shame. When somebody had been talking for too long, one of the old guys would look over and say, Hey! not a microphone, it's a shovel. When somebody would complain that they get cold, some other old man would be like, well, my shovel's got a heater in it. Uh, I don't get cold. You use that thing, that heater kicks in. Uh, I used that one quite a few times once in my tree planting days. But when Amy and I first moved down here to Nashville, you know, a couple of Midwesterners who were used to, who lived through and survived the blizzard of 78, People, we were watching television and the people on the news were losing their minds because it was supposed to get down to 18 degrees. And back in Indy, you know, we didn't get too worried about anything unless it was four or five below zero because it would get far below that. But these people were losing their minds and we're laughing. We're just, oh, that's crazy. What, what the big deal with that? And we woke up the next morning and our pipes were frozen. And I ended up underneath the house all day long. I was supposed to leave for a two-week tour. And I had to spend about half the day underneath the house with a blow dryer thawing out our pipes. So when I get done with this, I'm going to go out back and feed the birds and maybe throw a couple snowballs and be happy that I'm not stuck in a blizzard.
Hi, friends. This is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville on a cold winter day. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Dale Watson. Dale is a singer and a songwriter who lives in Austin, Texas. You can find out everything you need to know about Dale at dalewatson.com. When I first started this show, I made a list of some of the people that I'd like to have on. And uh, it wasn't that long of a list. It was probably 20 people or so. But Dale was one of the people on that. And I tried for a long time and just never seemed to work out. But uh, we were in the same city. He stopped in Nashville and he was more than eager to be part of this. And I really appreciate it. So we met up at a hotel room over by Opry Mills. Just had a really good time and a really good chat. And I was happy that he was willing to share so much, so many stories about his history. He's a man that's definitely been up and down the road a few times. Whenever I'm in Austin, I do everything I can to make it to Miss Jenny's on a Sunday afternoon for some chicken chip bingo and Dale Watson, or maybe over to the Continental Club. I believe it's on Mondays when he plays there. It definitely feels like you're in Austin, Texas and nowhere else in the world, and that's a very good feeling. There's part two of Dale Watson. Uh, I've been a meat doing shows with him. Uh, I, I used to have, uh, I used to lease his old bus from uh, Fred Snowden, who was his bus driver for many years. And uh, it was fun going to that bus, you know, because it was Cherokee Cowboy. It's made out all over like Cherokee Cowboy. And I think Fred introduced me to Ray. No, no. Uh, first time I met Ray was whenever he was going to studio, Willie, Willie's studio. I was there, Johnny Bush, Willie Nelson. And uh, Johnny was telling <laughs> Willie, or the other way around, he says, the old man's coming. I'm sitting there. I'm just like a fly on the wall. I just can't believe I'm at this recording session. I think it was, it was the Offenders recording session. Had Jimmy Day there and uh, David Zettner. And uh, I'm thinking, who's the old man? Who's the old man? And he said, really? The old man's going to make it? Yeah, old man's going to make it. So... And walks Ray Price. That's to them. That's the old man, you know. Because I, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm thinking, you're old guys. <laughs> but that's like, that's when I first met him. But uh, he let me do shows for him. He don't really didn't didn't really. It's hard to talk to him in past tense because he was he's uh, helped me a lot uh, just by letting me open shows for him. He normally didn't like uh, opening bands. He'd rather have a a single or a duo and and prefer women. Just because it's smart, uh, and I, I'm I'm of that mindset myself. I like to if we're going to do a show and I, I want an opener, we want somebody that's going to offer something different than what I'm going to do. You know, it's just like people say, "Won't you do shows with Merle Haggard?" I said that would be redundant. You know, I mean, Merle should have a, a a lady, a great lady singer, or or a guy that sings a little different from me than him. You know, and uh, you got to think in them terms when you want to entertain a crowd. You know, that's why I never understood 
them pack of shows where you get bands that all sound the same. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that would bore me. Back in the old days, they'd bring out a comedian to do the opening set. Yeah, you do a comedian, you do a, a, a well, when I do the Maripolitan uh, tour, which I plan on doing, uh, I'm going to have, sometimes I've done a couple of them already, but that's what I have. I have a, a, a duo act as guys, that was uh, Cactus Blossoms. And then we had Amber Digby go on, and then we go on. And it was, and it, to me, it's it's just a really entertaining package. You get to hear a, a duo, uh, like like they're like the Everly Brothers meets uh, Louvins. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's just that type of thing, and uh, but totally different from what I do, and of course, very different from Amber Digby, and and it, you know, it just works. You know, and so. But we get back to what I was talking about. Ray Price let me open a few of his shows, and. Uh, and that helped me a lot. Very, very generous. Funny too. All the way. To, I mean, he had his he had his snap all the way to the end, man. All the way. He's very first uh, Ameripolitan uh, uh, Master winner. Ameripolitan more, we got able to give it to him. And uh, he's the reason Ameripolitan exists. Uh, we got the award show going because uh, you know he had the balls to tell to say something to that Blake Shelton guy when he said, hey, nobody wants to listen to granddad's music. Uh, you know, we don't care what them old farts and jackasses say. So Ray Price said, there's not a hat made big enough to fit that boy's head and, you know, <laughs> see what his music sounds, sounds like in 65 years. And uh, so, yeah, he he's a, he was a role model, I think, musically and, and personally. First time I ever came in there, Jerry Lee Lewis was sitting at the bar drinking. <laughs> Apparently, he got pretty good and sloshed. And yeah, it was before I was even in the house band. I, uh, I just walked in there, and and uh, it was, you know, you. Always, I think everybody says it's about the place they have heard about it forever. You go into it, and I, it surprised me how small it was. You know, you know, you always think of it as being really big, especially places you see on TV. But you know, this is before any honky tonks were really advertised or shown on TV. But, uh, yeah, I went in there and surprised because it made CMA's, uh, what was it? Country venue of the year, whatever they called it. They, it got awards for being the, the, uh, the best, uh, venue. Yes. But it was really, uh, special. And nobody's ever asked me that either. And I, and, I, and, and that is the first night I walked into Palomino. Jerry Lee Lewis is at the bar getting drunk. Yeah, it was, I loved it. I love Jerry Lee. Yeah. I'm a huge Jerry Lee fan. <laughs> Me too. I'm with you. Did you get to interact with him at all then? Yeah. Or? Well, not then. I I kept, you know, I didn't, you know, I wanted to, but I I, I just didn't want to bug him. It looked like he was having a good time. He had a couple of women with him. and But uh, uh, I did open shows with him later, and uh, uh, he was very, very nice to me. He fired his band one of the nights. That was something. <laughs> he would, but matter of fact, I, I, I was playing guitar for a friend of mine, James Enfeld, who was was the uh, I was in his band opening for Jerry Lee, and uh, that was the night in California where uh, Jerry Lee would you could tell he was ticked off, and uh, he'd go pop 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 pop, shake my nerve in here right of my brain, that's it. <laughs> Here's another one, blah, 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 blah. And, he, and he did that for like six songs, just doing like maybe a bar or two of them, and then, good night, everybody, and he walked off stage. 
you know, he was, I guess when he's when he's pissed off and don't want to play, he he'll he'll do it, you know. But but uh, now that I say that, but then there's other times, uh, more times than not, he's played a whole show and just knocked it dead. I got to tell you, even even that, that little short time that he did that, I loved it, you know. I mean, I didn't pay to get in, so I didn't feel like I was gypped. <laughs> you know? The greatest rock and roll show I've ever seen was Jerry Lee, and uh, it was a mix where there were some songs he just decided he didn't want to play, and he stopped, but right. he went on to things that he wanted to play more, and it was just unbelievably great. Yeah, you know, the thing is, you're dealing with an icon, a guy that uh, is one of a kind, never make any more, and, and, uh, and he's special because he's special, and you, and you got to know that you're dealing with a – He's like nitroglycerin, you know. I mean, one night it might blow up, but but when it does its job, it does it right. Oddly enough, just because of my hairstyle, Uh, because I came from Pasadena, you know. I mean, I I I grew up on uh, you know what I called country music was uh, you know it was it was a Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard and and you know, Carl Perkins and Elvis even, I considered him country and all that stuff. And my, I combed my hair the way my dad combed his hair. And I loved the 50s stuff, but I've never thought of it as uh, rock and roll to me because I always was in a country band and we did them things. We did Jerry Lee Lewis. We did uh, uh, Carl Perkins, Elvis, Johnny Cash, uh, as well as Merle Haggard, George Jones, and Buck Owens. And uh, so when I went out there, I didn't play guitar that well at all, especially then. Uh, but they needed a guitar player, uh, and they said, well, how about you? I go, I sat in a couple of times. I said, yeah, you want to be regular? I go, there was tons of great guitar. Red Volkhart was living in the town at the time. <laughs> you know, he was a friend of mine. He, he could have, he should have got the gig, but, uh, uh, but I just, you know, one of them things where people hire you because of your look and, and I, and I was wanting to bend over backwards to do anything I could. You know, I was. Uh, where the great guitar players were usually working, or they had to pay them you know, a lot. You know, I, I just got I I took whatever I could get and was happy to be there. So I was I was, I was uh, my selling point was that uh, I guess I had the look they wanted. You know, and uh, and I was trying to be a nice guy I could be, and I was definitely appreciative to have the gig. So that goes a long way in in the music business. You know, if you got a good attitude, and uh, and you play it well enough, <laughs> and that's what happened. Did, how long did you do that gig? Uh, until I moved. You know, I uh, it was still going on when I left, uh, and uh, it was it was a fun gig. It was a great gig being a house band at a Palomino. I mean, was it a couple years? Uh, no, it was uh, from I guess from eighty eight to well uh, ninety ninety two. Yeah. When I search for pictures of uh, Palomino, it's just amazing the people that show up in these photos. Oh, man, yeah. What was it like? I mean, who, what kind of people would just happen to walk in? Well, that's it. You know, I mean, you, you well, Jerry Lee Lewis done, done on a couple occasions, uh, uh, Buck Owens, uh, a lot of Hollywood actors, you know, I mean, that would that would come up and play, you know, it kind of surprise you sometimes, uh, you know, would get up and, and sing and I saw a picture of a really young Johnny Depp playing yep. there. Yeah, Johnny Depp would do it. I remember him coming in. So Brian Setzer uh, uh, coming off and sit in. Uh, 
Harry Dean Stanton. Harry Dean, yeah, I remember when he came in there. Yeah, uh, I actually came up and did. Actually, was a guest on the show, the the barn dance, and uh, and that's another thing. The thing we did it was called the the barn dance that would feature different bands in the area or touring bands, and sometimes like salute to Gene Vincent or or Buck Owens or Merle Haggard, whatever you know. It would do would special nights. They're still doing it. Matter of fact, I think uh, Rosie who had just finished touring with she flew back to do the uh uh a tribute uh for linda ronstadt a fundraiser because they're at I, I don't know where it's at but it's wherever the barn dance is nowadays uh yeah because linda ronstadt's going through some things and just doing a tribute to her. uh i would think i made uh i think i made 50 or 60 a night something like that were you living in hollywood I was. I was living right downtown Hollywood, right, right at a uh, place called Malaga Castle, Sunset and uh, Gower, right behind the Rock and Roll Denny's, right in the shade of the shade of the Hollywood sign. I could see it right out my window. <laughs> Used to be Gloria Swanson's uh, apartment. Really? Yeah. There's a, that's, that's a whole other story. That Malaga Castle is uh, uh, right at DeLongpre and Apton, Sunset and Gower. That's the kind of the corner of it, and. Uh, it's a it's a landmark. Uh, it was built, I think, in 1914 or ni- something like that by Joseph uh, Kennedy when he owned uh, Paramount Studios, and he built that for all the extras that uh, uh, were with the studio. Back then, extras didn't work for just any studio that you know, like it is now. You were contracted with that studio. You know, they call them key extras, and uh, so. But the reason he built that thing there was because he had a mistress. And, he, and that special apartment, she designed herself. And that's the one that I happen to be uh, renting in with my friend who still lives there to this day. Uh, he was in a band from Dallas. I knew him. And uh, still a dear friend of mine. And uh, it's the only uh, two-story apartment. It's got a circular staircase. It's got a, uh, I mean, a huge, huge kitchen and drawing room and a fireplace. So me and my, James Enfield, we... Shot it. We did a Christmas forty-five, and uh, and and the picture on the forty-five is me and him in front of that fireplace. Uh, the four-foot uh, glass windows that that used to face Sunset, where they can see the Hollywood sign before. Uh, it's right behind Gower Gulch, so you were able to see all that. And uh, and his concubine, his mistress, was Gloria Swanson. She's the one who designed it all. It's got a which had a, a seven foot uh, tub, iron tub, two of them upstairs, and a circular shower that had thirteen shower heads. Apparently, she was very creative. <laughs> had all right, it had a, a, a three that that were in circular pipes that went around you. Then it had two uh, up top, uh, two in the middle. Two in back up top, two in the middle, uh, in the back. Okay, so that's twelve, or that's that's eleven, and then uh, of course uh, twelve is the one that's above you that showers on you. The thirteenth was a swing out adjustable water pressure and temperature bidet. <laughs> Gloria had it going on. I'd have well, I'd have girl girlfriends that break up with me, but they'd always come back in the neighborhood and knock on the door and say, "Hey, I'm just in the neighborhood. Can I use your shower?" <laughs> yeah. 
That's happened. Uh, yeah, especially with the Palomino, certainly. Yeah, I mean, we've had, uh, I, I don't know if it was, I'm, see, I'm not really uh, up on my my heavy metal and all that kind of stuff, but I do know when the buzz happened, there was, these guys would come in, like I think Slash came in and, and played at the Palomino, and so did uh, 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 Lenny, what's his, uh, yeah. Lenny? You know, yeah. And so uh, I know that, when they'd come in, there'd be a buzz, and I just didn't know who they were. But, uh, but it was always that Palomino was pretty uh, well known for that, and uh, and there was a bit of a scene because Sunset, uh, you know, that was that strip was happening. We're talking about the mid '80s, and that's when all the that that stuff was happening. They would drink all up and down Sunset, and uh, uh, and go to the Palomino, and go. There's another place off of Lancashire. Which all the hair metals played, which is right down the road from the Palomino, and and uh, it was <laughs> it was a different scene in the in uh, them times uh, in L.A. than it is now. Yeah, they the, the old the Palomino. Uh, it was yeah. If you see any pictures of that? It's it was definitely a, a uh, mixed crowd, but it was a lot a lot of uh, uh, pretty young ladies. Who are the regulars that uh, the folks listening to this might know? I know there was a lot of musicians that were just cutting their teeth at the time. Or oh, Big Sandy and Fly Right Boys—they uh, were just starting out back then. Uh, uh, James Enfield would, like I said, he's, he's my best friend. He was—he was playing there. He's the one that pretty much introduced me to uh, Ronnie Mack, who got me in the barn in the band. John Jorgensen of the uh, uh, Desert Rose Band—he would—he would be there a lot. Uh, You'd see. I'm trying to think. Somebody, Lucinda Williams. I think she actually got her signed through there. Uh, Strangers was there. Uh, a lot. Well, Jim Lauderdale. That was he was. That was where he really came to uh, be a recording star out there because I think he got signed mainly because of the Palomino stuff. There's some. I'm trying to think some of the ladies out there because there's a lot of ladies that had talent out there. Not necessarily country, but she would uh, she would come up and sing uh, another uh, of Pete Anderson's productions. What's her name? Uh, Michelle Shock. Okay. Michelle Shock. Uh, she'd come out sometimes, but that's the thing. Uh, you know, Pete Anderson and Dwight. Dwight would come out uh, and use it with an actor friend of his. You know, that the that time frame in California was when the Bakersfield sound was coming back. You know, that's when that record of uh, Town south of Bakersfield came out, and uh, Rosie Flores was was kind of like the female Dwight at the time, and and it was a, kind of a roots revival. It felt like you know, then it got stomped to death by line dancing, <laughs> and died a horrible, horrible death. <laughs> well, because it was it was the home. Uh, uh, because there was a lot of places changing, uh, as always it is, uh, you know. The, but there was a actual community of musicians and singers and upcoming bands and upcoming artists that that uh, and the ones that have been there, the veterans. You know, I mean, we, I got to play with J.D. Manus, uh, uh, who, who played steel guitar for Buck Owens, for, uh, you know, some drummers that that Jim Keltner and and uh, uh, the. Uh, uh, before he moved here, I don't know what he was doing out in California. I think he was driving a bus. Buck Owens drummer, who plays here, right around the corner from where we're doing this interview. Uh, 
you know, so you you get the root, the mix of the old roots, and then the people who are who want to keep it going. And that's what you know. It's just like Jim Lauderdale did, and uh, and Dwight Yoakam when he brought Buck Owens out. So it was the place to go for that. So it it pretty much uh, kept the roots alive in L.A. As far as I'm concerned, because uh, it was just a real focal point, and no other place was doing that. Why it closed down? Oh, it's a simple reason. I mean, it, once uh, Tommy died, uh, uh, his nephew took it over, and and uh, he really wanted to make it a rock and roll thing in first place. And at some point, he was able to do that, and then it just that was the final demise, and it didn't go over at all. And then it turned into a Tejano place, and I think it's closed up now. Last I seen, it has a fence around it. Yeah, it's sad. You'd like to get that sign. <laughs> Had a cool sign. I was on tour on the East Coast about 10 years ago with my best buddy Todd. And sometimes when we're on the road, we try to think of things to pass time. And sometimes we'll write songs and we'll think, let's write uh, something that someone else might like. And we thought, let's write Dale Watson songs. Oh, yeah. And uh, with the idea of this imaginary idea of, oh, Dale would love this. That was the only thing around it. So we drove past a cemetery in Northampton, uh, Massachusetts, and we saw a woman who looked like a ghostly figure standing out in front of it. So we concocted this whole story of a prostitute that died many years ago, and she's a ghost, and she comes back and haunts people, and she's called the Northampton whore. <laughs> the, I like it. <laughs> the, cor- the chorus goes like this. Men would walk the streets at night, hopelessly looking for one last chance to lay beside the North Hampton whore. That's perfect. <laughs> I like it. Did you finish it? Uh, yeah, it's laying probably under a pile of other songs. Well, but, uh, you should. I like it. All right, man. I appreciate you chatting with me. And by the way, I just want to add that uh, I'm no longer mainlining PCP or, or acid. It's official. <laughs> If anybody don't know, that's a walk hard reference, <laughs> which is my favorite movie in the whole world. I try to end every interview on that. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Dale for meeting up with me at a hotel room here in Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Dale at dalewatson.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. 
I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.